Welcome to SLP Learning Series, a podcast series presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. The SLP Learning Series explores various topics of speech-language pathology. Each season dives deeper into a topic with a different host and guest who are leaders in the field. Some topics include stuttering, AAC, sports concussion, teletherapy, ethics, and more. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Now, come along with us as we look closer into the many topics of speech-language pathology. Welcome to the podcast mini-series, On the Neuro, presented by speechtherapypd.com. Thanks for joining us for our third episode, The Neuropsychology of Sports Concussions. This audio course is offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. I am your host, Dr. Tabia Pope, President and CEO of Head to Speech Incorporated. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of this podcast and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. My non-financial disclosures are that I am the founder, president, and CEO of Head to Speech Incorporated, a nonprofit organization. My guest, Dr. Tiffany Gurley Nettles, receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this episode, and no relevant non-financial relationships exist. And now, here is a little bit about my guest today. As a speech-language pathologist, Dr. Tiffany Gurley Nettles has been providing prevention, education, evaluation, and treatment services for individuals with brain injuries and other neurological disorders for over 20 years. Dr. Gurley Nettles earned her doctoral degree in health psychology with a focus in neuropsychology and desires to help individuals experiencing brain and other health-related trauma along with their families. She has personal experience with head injury and concussion, working with family members, one who played high school, college, and semi-professional football, and another who experienced two playground injuries. Dr. Gurley Nettles' research interests include post-stroke depression, family caregiver stress, concussion syndrome, and chronic traumatic encephalopathy in college athletes, and its academic impact and memory training intervention in older adults with further research interests in crisis, disaster, and trauma intervention. Dr. Gurley Nettles is also a clinical professor and program director of speech language pathology program at the University of District of Columbia. Thank you so much for being on the Neuro Podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Dr. Pope. On the Neural Podcast features guests who are either emerging, expanding, or influencing within the neural community, as well as those who can speak on topics related to brain injury, forced concussion management, and overall brain health. So at first, I wanted to just start off by asking you, in the this as a speech pathologist and in clinical neuropsychology, do you consider yourself emerging, expanding, or influencing in this area? 
I think I'm a cross between expanding and influencing. You can, you're always expanding in this field. There's no room for stagnation. So, you know, it's a continuous learning environment. So that's where the expanding comes from. And as for influencing, I love to advocate for my patient, anyone that I'm working with or that I'm teaching. So, yeah, so that's how I kind of straddle both of those arenas. Well, that's that's great. And is there anything that you've learned, I guess, as a expanding or influencer within this field, within speech language pathology, as well as clinical neuropsychology? That I've learned with regards to expanding? Mm-hmm. Just making sure that you stay on top of the latest research and the evidence-based practice and being able to, you know, present your best self and always leading with your core values. I love that. Yes. Evidence-based practice. And so we're going to be talking about brain injury, behavioral and emotional changes this evening. So my first question for you is, what are the behaviors secondary to sports-related concussions? So we want to talk about, you know, the behavior and the emotional impact as well. Okay. So first, let me just start off by just a little bit of background with regards to neuropsychology. Neuropsychology is actually the understanding of behaviors as it relates to brain influences and the brain and how it influences what the influences are, I'm sorry, after injuries and the differences that the outcomes of differences between behavior and cognitive functions. So we look at the behavioral and emotional changes that emerge as a result of some sort of injury to the brain. Some of your behavioral problems are inappropriate behavior, lack of self-awareness, loss of empathy, irritability. There's anger, lack of emotional control, depression, mood swings, loss of drive, dependency, frustration. There's also sluggishness and selfishness as well. So when you are working with athletes and for our for our speech for our listeners, our speech pathologists, when dealing with these emotional difficulties and behaviors, what are some tips that you can give them when they are working in this area and also reaching out to all other clinical neuropsychologists to work together in this area? That's a key point that you just made working together. There is such a cross section between neuropsychology and speech language pathology. We have to work together so that we understand what's going on with the patient, particularly from speech language pathology to neuropsychology. We have to understand the behaviors, the secondary behaviors that come about when a patient is frustrated or they're angered or they're, they may have reduced self-awareness or they may become confused at times or with diminished social skills. So the speech language pathologist has to know what the tools are that the neuropsychologist is providing so that that can be coupled with the cognitive therapy and the speech and language therapy that's going on in the clinic with the speech language pathologist. And I think it's very unique that you are a speech pathologist and you have interest in clinical neuropsychology. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what sparked your interest to go back and, you know, to get a doctorate degree in health psychology? I mean, that's awesome. Yes. Thank you for that question. So I was really fascinated at some of the things that I was seeing in the clinic, the changes. You know, you would be working with a patient, say you would go in with the patient and there's no other family present. And so we kind of think that this is their personality. This is how they are. And say you you gone, you went in and Miss Jenkins is in there cussing and saying foul language and being rude. 
then the family member comes in and then you hear comments such as mom was never like this. This is not her. She never cursed before. She was never mean to people. There, I had one experience with someone who I knew Per, well, not pers- I knew him personally because we went to the same church. Mm-hmm. And then after he had a stroke, his personality changed. I knew him as a very stern, business-oriented type of person. And after his stroke, he was completely jovial and friendly and just talkative and welcoming, which he was not before. So all of those things that I was just seeing in my various arenas, my various social circles, it just became fascinating to me with the changes in behavior. I didn't really know. That's not something you really learn as a speech language pathologist about the the behavioral changes and emotional changes that can Mm -hmm. occur. But that was really what got me. And then I also had some some personal experience, some family members where I began to notice some changes and it just made me kind of question a lot of things. And, you know, once you start questioning, you start researching. And the next thing you know, I was back in school. I want to, right. And you're back in school learning. You're always alert. I love how you said you're expanding because you're always learning. It's always an ongoing learning process. Like you're never too big, you know, to always go back and learn new things. And I love that. What is one thing that you would I guess, encourage speech pathologists to think about when they're thinking about maybe going and getting their doctorate in uh, neuropsychology or, you know, health psychology was something that you would encourage them to think about. And then also pull in your research too, because we want to talk about your research and, you know, how you are, you know, inspired to, to research your topic as well. You know, interestingly enough, I was looking for the connections between speech language pathology and psychology. And you would see it as I started to notice behavioral changes. A lot of our patients were coming in and I was having to do more training with our speech pathology graduate students on how to counsel Mm. our patients because they were very labile. Our patients would come in crying or they would they would make self-demeaning remarks of themselves, calling themselves stupid. Or they would say things like, you know, no one talks to me at home. And I and those things just really struck me. So I was really trying to find the link between the two. I wanted to know if there were effects of, say, caregiver stress on post-stroke depression, which was mm-hmm. my research topic during my dissertation. And so it was, it's looking at, for me, it was looking at the connection between the two. So there are many things that we see clinically on a daily basis that may pique interest. And I say, just start writing your questions down. A lot of, I do get that question often. And I tell my students, when you are working with your clients and you see things that kind of make you ponder a bit, write those down, write questions down about what you're seeing. They can turn into research opportunities Mm -hmm. and another degree. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go back to counseling because I think that is not talked enough about in, in our graduate programs and really mm-hmm. thinking about just within the profession of how we utilize counseling. Can you talk a little bit more about counseling strategies for speech pathologists that may want to work with brain injury and work with athletes as well? Yeah, absolutely. So with counseling as speech language pathologists, we generally do um, informational counseling and then we do what's called life adjustment counseling. So we're helping that 
person adjusts to their new life and the changes that they are they are experiencing currently. And I don't want to say that they now have because some of those things are remediated with therapy. And of course, everything is individualized. So you have to look at what the patient's life was pre-morbidly. So prior to the stroke or the brain injury, what was the patient like? What was their social life like? What were their, how was their emotional state? Were they typically a moody person or typically a jovial person or Gregorius? Were they social? So you need to get all of that information as well as collecting the data on what their cognitive or communicative deficits are. Mm-hmm. So it's collecting counts, it's collecting the behavior, the brain, connecting the brain and behavior and not just only the cognitive communication. Right. So a lot, and a lot of it does include us teaching the patient about the disorder or deficit they, that they are experiencing as well Cons- as the family consultations care. too, consultation and making sure that they, that the, like, like you said, the family, the patient and the family members and their support system understands what has happened, understand the disorders and how the brain and behavior as well, the the brain and behavior. I love that. Yes. And you definitely have to get that family in there because the family needs to be educated because they have to have the awareness of it. And then they have to be able to accept what's happening. And they, the family is going to be experiencing a lot of changes. So they're getting added responsibilities which can create stress, anxiety, burden for them. Mm-hmm. And as well as the, the loved one, the person who has suffered the injury. So they both sides are grieving. They're grieving the loss of the former person. Mm. So the person who suffered the stroke or brain injury, they're grieving their former self. The loved one who's the family caregiver, they're grieving what their loved one used to be or what the things that they used to could, you know, could be able to do in the past. And so that's a lot to deal with. And so there's a lot of tools that we have to put in their toolbox in terms of finding out what's triggering you when you respond a certain way and what tools work best for you. And there could be a number of things, whether it's meditation or taking a walk or exercise, those things that have been proven to reduce stress and anxiety. And that's a great segue into my next question, because I wanted to talk about how can, you know, student athletes, professionals and former athletes really get the help that they need after sustaining a sports related concussion and thinking about what type of peer support groups, family support groups, caregiver support groups, how can we utilize support groups and structure support groups for this population? So, yes. So back to the first part of your question, when you're talking about how do athletes get help when they return to school, you know, it should be inclusive of the special education coordinator, the speech language pathologist, the school counselor, the school psychologist. And if occupational therapy and physical therapy is needed, they should be included as well as long along with the general education teacher. You know, a lot of times people with brain injuries, they are invisible disabilities because you don't see any physical impairment. Mm -hmm. But you think about that person who is fully physical mobile, fully physically mobile, but they're having some changes that are occurring in the brain. Sometimes people tend, if they don't see anything physically wrong with you, they think they don't think anything is wrong with you. So they assume that you are functioning grossly grossly within functional limits when you are not. And so you are not given the resources and support that you need. Mm 
So you really should involve all of the multidisciplinary team in the school system, in the in grade school levels. And then when you get to the college level, there are accessibility resource centers or disability resource centers, depending on what they call it at the institution, that is available to help students transition back into the educational realm. And then if there's speech language pathologists on campus, make that connection, seek out those, or even if you have to go to another campus or get a private practice clinician to help you as well, and they will still, everyone needs to work together and connect and share that information about that patient so that everyone's providing the the most optimal care for the person. I love that. And and how can we structure support groups? So I know there, there are different types of support groups. How can we structure support groups? What would you what, what would you recommend for structuring support groups as well? So yes, thank you. Structuring support groups is very important. You know, you want to have people with like injuries in a support group. Okay. That helps them see other people and let them know they're not alone. And then they're able to forge a community. A lot of times when people are experiencing whatever the challenges they are with their injury, they think they're the only ones that are going through this. And just knowing that there are other people that are going through this together and then there are ways within the support group, depending on how that particular support group is structured, whether there are activities to engage in activities for therapy. There can be therapy activities going on in support groups as well. And then there's also the family caregiver. So there should be support groups separately and there should be support groups where the dyad is engaged together. Mm. So there needs to be some dyad, understanding the the dyad of family caregiver and the care recipient, because that makes a world of difference. It's different for each pair or Mm -hmm. each family group. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you have two two support groups. You have one for the athlete and then one for their support systems. And then you need to merge the two so everyone can talk talk about the issues together. Yes, absolutely. I love that. I love that. Briefly talked about mindfulness. And I want to go back to that because I think that is a unique perspective that speech pathologists may not understand mindfulness meditation and how it's important for concussion recovery or brain injury in general. Yes. You know, that's one of the one of my what do we say evolving pieces of me. So I'm really diving more into mindfulness and mindfulness meditation. And mindfulness is simply being in the present, being in the present and experiencing everything in the now. What a lot of times we don't necessarily think about it, but we're nine times out of ten, a lot of us are always thinking about the next step, the next thing they're going to do, or they're thinking about what happened in the past. So mindfulness being in the present allows your brain to rest. One of the key factors, as you know, Dr. Pope, after a brain injury is rest. Rest, sleep, relaxation, those are key elements that allow the brain to heal after an injury. Doing the various mindfulness practices, and there could be, there are different ones, and just to name a few, you can do mindfulness or meditative walks. Nature. Nature is known to be a healer. Just spending some time in nature. And while you're while you're walking, what are some of the questions? Are these questions that they're asking themselves or are they how do you how do you structure this walk? So when you're walking, you're really just paying attention to the things that you see. 
oh, there's the pebble on the ground and you're looking at the leaves and the tree, the color of the leaves, the sky. You're paying attention to everything that's going on around you. The wind, is there a breeze blowing? Do you feel it on your skin? What does it feel like? Is it rain? Do you feel the droplets touching your skin? Is it running? Is the water kind of running off your arm? Those you're, you're, taking, like you're taking all of the nature in. You're taking all yes. what's happening to you right now. Yes. Living in the moment. Taking that present moment in, just really enjoying the experience of now. I love that. So you say going on going on walks, and then I and then I think I cut you off. <laughs> oh, you can actually sit sit and do meditative practices such as body scanning. So you start from the top of your head and you just feel everything that's going on in your head. You may feel some some tingling or something, and you move down to your eyes and you want to relax every part, every muscle as you're moving down your body and you're scanning your body as you move through each body part, each muscle and let it relax and feel what the sensations are. You feel your, your like sitting in the chair right now, you feel your bottom on the chair, right? And you feel some type of pressure and you may feel pressure on certain points of your legs where your legs are sitting, how your feet are grounded on the floor. And then there's also breath work. You can do some breathing where you actually track the breath as it comes in through your nasal canal, down your nasal pharynx, down your larynx, into anatomy your, lungs, here. your <laughs> chest expands. Anatomy. Yes. <laughs> so you want to feel, you want to pay attention to where that breath is going and what your body is doing and how your body is moving in that moment, in that present moment. And you are so focused and your mind is clear. And you also want to remember to give yourself space and grace during these times. If your mind wanders off to some other thought other than your breathing or your body scanning, it's okay. Acknowledge the thought, move it on out the way and return back to that present moment. Want graduate level semester credits for your speechtherapypd.com courses? They are available now in collaboration with the University of Pacific. And as you know, most of our 750 plus video and audio courses are evidence-based and all are super practical. Subscribe now. This might also be a great time for incorporating journaling. I don't know how you feel about journaling and how, you know, how do you feel about journaling during this experience? Journaling is another reflective and meditative practice as well. It allows you to get all of your emotions out on paper. You know, a lot of times we hold in a lot of things and particularly you talk and connecting this with head injury. A lot of times our patients try to pretend like there's nothing wrong. That's a lot of energy and effort that people mm. with head injuries, some of them, will put into kind of disguising their brain injury. They don't want people to know or think that anything is wrong with them. So they work extra hard and they become very fatigued. And so that's where that rest and relaxation and that mindfulness can come in. It acts as a, also, also a way to release, release that mm-hmm. stress and release yes. that anxiety that you have, those feelings that you yes. talked about, the emotional and behavioral feelings that they made, that they are experiencing and also validating what they're going through too. I think that as a speech pathologist, we have a unique point of view where we can validate like this, this is what you're going through. And I've experienced enough to help guide you through this process. 
Absolutely. And the, the group therapy, group sessions can help with that as well. You have other people validating your personal experiences as well because they're, they are experiencing something similar. Mm-hmm. And I've so seen also, I've seen a new trend of speech pathologists in, that are in the brain injury, uh, brain certified brain injury specialists utilizing yoga. So there are different, mm-hmm. different types of exercises, Pilates, uh, utilizing exercise with for brain injury. I think that's a unique perspective too in utilizing yes, that is. mindfulness. Yes, exercise has proven abilities to reduce stress and anxiety. And we know that our people that we work with who are suffering from brain injuries endure. Mm. I want to I want to kind of ask you about just some examples. Uh, what are some case examples uh, that you have from working with brain injury survivors and their families that we can get a kind of a picture of how someone with your background has experienced working with this population? So well, I'll share my first experience working with someone with a um, concussion. I was working at a acute care facility and the person came in, he had a concussion. It was a severe concussion. He was unconscious for a while, maybe well, a couple of hours. I'm not going to say a while because I don't even think it's days, but for a couple of hours. And so when he came to, he would need, he needed therapy. So there were some things that I was noticing as I was interviewing him and just talking to him to see what was going on. And I noticed a lot of um, inappropriate behavior, inappropriate language, Sexual, it was sexual inappropriateness too that often comes with people who are suffering from head injury. And so those were some of the things that I was noticing just in my observation of the patient. And one of the things that I was doing, one of the assessments was requiring uh, him to identify objects. And I, I know you're familiar with the LARC kit, and the LARC kit has a hammer in it. And um, as we were going through the assessment and I was asking for the hammer to sh- for him to show me the hammer, he picked up the hammer and lunged towards me. I, I was like, oh, whoa. I was like, OK, but he put it down. He was like, oh, I wouldn't do that. But that was inappropriate. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so I so we have to sit down. You have to sit down and talk about it. So you want to have honest conversations about the behaviors that right. you're witnessing. You can't just right? dismiss that like it didn't happen. <laughs> you can't. You cannot just dismiss it. And, you know, you have to talk about what the consequences could have been. Mm-hmm. You don't know. You know, I was explaining to him. You don't know what my particular traumas may have been behind someone lunging towards me let alone with a weapon or something that could be used as a weapon. And he was like, oh, you know, I didn't think about that. So we began to have dialogue about the behavior. And so that would go on. And of course, it didn't go away. Right. And some of the things that he some of the sexual connotations that he was he was bringing up. And I when I would let him know, I was like, "Okay, inappropriate. I said, we're in a professional environment and he would apologize. And so as our sessions went on, you noticed him start. Okay, I want to make sure I'm appropriate. So now he's thinking about it from the different conversations that we were having. And so just different tools. So one of the tools that I gave him was for him to think about what he was going to say before he said it. And you have to run through that process in your head. Is this going to hurt this person's feelings? What consequences 
could come if I did this or if I said that. And they have lack of impulse control as well. So these are it's multiple things that you're kind of targeting at once. But you have to make sure that you're giving them something, a tool that they can use, that they can put in their toolbox and use every day. And then you want to give it to them to use between sessions. Okay, so today we learned about self-talk. Tell me how are you going to use your positive self-talk between now and when you see me again tomorrow. And then we're going to discuss it the next day. So positive positive self-talk. Yes, because a lot of times, you know, that's one thing they can, the patients can sometimes talk down on themselves because of the lack, because of what they're grieving of their former self, right? So you want to engage them in positive self-talk for that as well. And as well as talking, you're talking their way through certain situations, such as, you know, raising the hammer and appropriateness of what they're about to say. And then there are other ways for them to understand their triggers. If they have anger outbursts, well, let's talk about what triggered you. And did did you know that you were coming, you were appearing very aggressive And that could be scary for some people and it could raise alarms for other people and then other consequences can happen. And you just sit there and you just kind of talk through them Mm -hmm. so that they are aware and then they begin to understand what's going on, accept their differences and understand what they need to do to move past that or move through those situations. Wow. I I think that you have to learn how to ask the questions and guide and learn how to guide our patients through the positive self-talk. And what are some what are some resources that speech pathologists can use to learn how to to incorporate those strategies that you that you found really helpful? I think the best thing is the communication between the other disciplines. Right. So you want to connect with the other allied health professionals on the team to find out what what is being beneficial, what is being found to be beneficial in those sessions and that you have to carry it over into your session. Just like as speech language pathologists, we are looking at what goes on in physical therapy and in occupational therapy. And we use some of those strategies and things that they're learning in speech language pathology and our therapy. Yeah, to help them facilitate and continue to learn what they are trying to develop in those other areas. It goes the same way. We have to add that neuropsychologist in or the school psychologist or the school counselor. Um, mm-hmm. Add them in and find out what the strategies are because everything it's going to be different for every person. It's not going to be the same thing. You just have to understand that the conversations have to be honest and you have to give honest and real-time feedback, but you have to understand that particular person, what their mood is like. So say they're in a very aggressive or angry mood and they're having a big emotional or aggressive outburst. How much time does it take for that person to calm down? What tools and techniques and strategies, what works for that individual to help bring them down? Definitely telling someone to calm down is not, that's more of a trigger than helping someone to um, so I would definitely stay away from that. But you want to you want to know and you have to find these things out from the other professionals that are working with them. Why and why do you say that? Why do you say that that's a trigger? Can you expand upon that? You know, How telling someone to um, <laughs> you ever notice when someone is upset and you first thing someone to say, oh, calm down. 
somebody may feel like they're calm. So all that does is enrage them even more. I'm not, I don't, I'm not necessarily sure about the science behind it, but calm down, calm, telling someone to calm down is usually a trigger because a lot of times the person and people tend to use it inappropriately, mm-hmm. right? You know, their perception of your response trip tells them to tell you to calm down when you're, when you are calm. They have not seen your wrath or they have not seen you be angry yet. They're just experiencing you responding to something. So it's going to depend, but you have to just, you have to find out what works for each person. I kind of want to go back to talking about the emotional and behavioral part, because I want to think about, because when I think of neuropsychology, I think of my background as well in learning about neuropsychology and thinking about the different, the brain anatomy and understanding how can speech pathologists understand the different, like the frontal lobe and the amygdala and those brains, the basal ganglia, right? How does all of that, all, all of these neural anatomical parts, how, how can we understand the behavior, the brain behavior behind the frontal lobe and the amygdala? Yeah, just understanding, yes, a lot of it comes from that prefrontal cortex, Um, where the emotional and behavioral activities occur. And so they will experience, your patients will experience things like depression and anxiety and mood swings. You know, you'll see that a lot. And then we talked about personality changes a little bit earlier. And they'll have difficulty with executive function and then social difficulties. So we have to make room for them to be able to with with those behavioral or emotional type issues, we have to make room for them to be able to learn how to re reincorporate themselves into communities, into their various social circles. But understanding the brain is important, but it's just never cookie cutter. Of course, we know that mm-hmm. of what you're going to get when you have someone with a tra- with a traumatic brain injury, whether it's very severe or whether it's mild. Mm-hmm. Do you have any case examples of, of a neuropsychologist, you've working with a neuropsychologist or, or any anything pop up that you that you have thought of, you know, actually working with a neuropsychologist of when exactly to refer, you know, when clinical neuropsychologists and speech pathologists, there's so much overlap with, you know, what we do. But then like, when do we say we need to refer, you know, like this is I'm going to pass this off to the clinical psychologist, you know, neuropsychologist? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think when it's, when you know it's time to refer is when it's starting to move outside of your wheelhouse. When the person that's experiencing depression cannot come out of that, whether it's for a moment or for an extended period of time to get to therapy. Is it impacting your therapy? What is the person talking about? How severe is your perception of what they're saying? Whenever you're in doubt, always refer. The referral is not going to hurt anything Mm -hmm. other than, you know, a little time for the patient to have to spend with another clinician Mm -hmm. um, to get an assessment. Mm -hmm. But you want to look at if the if the mood swings are very frequent. The, if they are being self, if they're self-harming, if they're so labile that you can't get absolutely anything done and none of the techniques and strategies that you are trying to implement are working, 
we have to make sure that we are just very in tune with our clients and to have that rapport with them so that they will share the differences and the difficulties that they are having. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as speech language pathologists, we spend a lot of one-on-one time with our clients. So they they tend to tell us much more than they would tell another allied health professional because a lot of times other professionals are working in groups. Mm -hmm. But because we get that one-on-one time, we get some of that in-depth insight that share with their personal fears and and we have to be ready to refer and i think it should be just a part of the of the track when someone has injury to the brain that all of these professionals need to have a consult it should be a defined pathway I love that defined pathway because it doesn't happen all in some settings. The speech pathologist is the afterthought when it and when it, especially with with athletes, right? Sports concussion management, we're an afterthought. So I I'm, I want to I want to wanted to ask you. So how do we advocate for? Our assessments for speech language pathology assessments, like the co- a cognitive, truly a cognitive communication assessment versus uh, like a neural psychology assessment that is commonly used, you know, the impact testing and sports concussion management. Mm -hmm. How do we truly advocate for our, our services in this realm? What we have to have people understand and give them the awareness, number one, of what speech language pathologists do. There's such a deficit in what the community at large is aware of with regards to speech language pathology and how dynamic our field is. And we have to go out there and we have to provide the educational topics to say, you know, we work with this population. When you have a concussion, you can have cognitive linguistic disorders, you can have speech and language disorders, and we are here to help facilitate those deficits so that that person can be functional in their various environments. But we definitely have to get out there and do the legwork, creating the atmosphere and environment for acceptance and awareness campaigns regarding the field of speech language pathology and how we can help with various types of injuries and traumas. Mm -hmm. And that be an afterthought in this area. Yes, I love that. Is there any else that you would like to to tell our our listeners about your background and about neuropsychology and what else do I want to say I would like to add more about you know working with with individuals with concussions and brain injuries you know we always have to remember just like as just like as as we say speech is a loss of language not a loss of intellect you know just because that athlete can no longer or at that moment no longer do a certain activity. It's not to say that they've lost who they are. They just lost something they can't do right now. And of course, sometimes they may not be able to do it anymore because we know what happens when people suffer repeated concussions. Mm-hmm. You know, now we're moving into CTE, cognitive uh, traumatic encephalopathy, but it's not a loss of their individuality. It's just the loss of of, of something that you used to do. And we have to work with them to find alternate means for them to feel satisfied in that area. We have a question from one of our listeners and one of our listeners says, do patients ever lie about doing their task or how do you know if they are really using positive thinking? 
you know, we, you know, we have to rely on what our, our patients tell us. So, and sometimes our patients will confabulate just like we have those who don't want to acknowledge the fact that they cannot do something. So, and that could come from lack of awareness or self, uh, lack of self-awareness, because a lot of times that does happen in patients who suffer concussions and other brain injuries where they lack the awareness to know that they are deficient in an area and that they're not supposed to do that. Say driving, for example, and they've been told you cannot drive right now. You're not, you know, you're not able to do that. Oh, I can drive. They don't know what they're talking about. I can drive, but they're not understanding the consequences behind it. But in regards to positive thinking, we don't know, but we can practice it with them. That's something we would practice with them. We would train the caregivers to practice with them. They're journaling. We don't know if we never know if our patients are doing their homework, those carryover or generalization activities. We never know until they come back to the clinic the next time. So and a lot of times that I like to give like real life activities. I'll say, OK, when I, before I see you next week, at least one time, I want you to go to the store and do do a specific task then you're going to come back and then we're going to talk about what happened. How did you feel? What did you do? We're going to talk about other experiences that you were involved in throughout the week or between sessions. And then we're going to come back and talk about how you handle it, what went well, what didn't go well. It's like reflective learning in a sense. So you go through and you client what happened and you want to make the best suggestions for them to handle the situations in the future. And there's also role play. That's something that I love to do. I don't, you probably remember that from in class with me, um, but that's definitely something that I like to do. And, you know, the, the clients and the patients, they really get into that, you know, and I've had people actually get mad when we were just role playing, but they really had a, an emotional response from it. Give so give us an example. Give us an example of one of the role plays that you that you've used. So an example one one time I did I played the um, not so pleasant worker at a grocery store. The person you know the patient played the customer and I was playing the worker at the store and they needed help and I was being dismissive. And I just kept being dismissive and the person was asking for help locating. Um, I think it was a a grocery item. So where the bread was. And I just kept saying, it's down the aisle. It's down the aisle. And he was like, but no, ma'am, I need your help. Because I was trying to get him to make sure that he was doing help seeking and advocating for himself when he's in public spaces. Mm. And I know a lot of people aren't aware. So they have to know how to handle these situations. So I was playing the nonchalant employee and I just kept saying, oh, it's all the way down there. Go down a couple of hours, you'll find it. Now, you know, that's kind of abstract for someone who has some cognitive deficit secondary to a head injury. He began to get frustrated. The more I was dismissive. Oh, I don't know if it's in that aisle. Check the next aisle. Well, I don't know. Keep going. Just keep going down the aisle. You know, I can't, you know, I got to do this right here. I don't have time to help you. I got to help another customer. And he literally got frustrated and started yelling. And I said, oh, I said, so let's talk about this. And I said, are you okay? And he was like, yeah, I'm okay. And he's like, man, he said, I really got mad, didn't I? And I said, you did. And I said, what did you do to first bring yourself down? He said, well, I talked about, he said, I did one of your breathing techniques. He said, I went, and he did, he went. (laughs) 
So he took calming breaths. So that's one of the things that I would practice with someone who gets easily angered or frustrated. So he took his calming breaths. And in the in the mix of everything with the emotions, he felt everything, all of this stuff going on in his body, at his heart rate. You know, he felt tightness in his chest and in his in his head. And that's all that anger and frustration bubbling up. And so I said, let's talk about some other things that you could have done. I love the way you did your your calming breath. That was great. You need to calm yourself down first before you continue. And so then we began to discuss some other options, how he could have asked maybe someone else in the store, another service member in the store, or even some of the customers in the store. So we kind of worked our way through that. But he was actually shocked that he got and he said, I knew we were just playing. (laughs) He said, but I actually got upset with you (laughs) Mm -hmm. as we were in that situation. I love that. I'm tempted to ask you another. Give me another example, because I I mean, I just love the illustration, you know, and I think role playing is so important for this population because what we're what we need to work on is functional. What matters to the to athletes, right? Thinking about what matters to athletes too and tying that into our, our, our scenarios. Anything specifically for athletes that you want that you think about with someone from your background when you think about athletes and sports concussions? So when, I, when we talk about athletes, the thing is not to return too soon. I think that is one of the biggest problems that we have with sports teams. It's always about the win, but we have to make it about your players as well. And they need that type, the the coaches and the football staff, the athletic staff, they need that type of education to understand, okay, he cannot go back in. He suffered a concussion. He, although he only was unconscious for one minute, he still needs to be out for the rest of the game. We have to talk about that and then returning to the field too soon. You know, you want to make sure that that person is completely healed and and not just from one health professional get the release. You need the release from the team. You need to talk to the speech language pathologist, talk to the neuropsychologist, the physical therapist, the occupational therapist, the school psychologist, the teacher. Everybody has their input to say what they are seeing in the classroom, in their clinical sessions and what have you in terms of how that person is operating. And that decision should be made collectively, even with the the medical physician as well. So we definitely don't want to leave the um, MD out of it, Mm -hmm. but that should be a collective decision. But I think that's one of the, that's one of the key things that I find and that the players try to hide it. You know, your players will try to hide, you know, and they used to, back in the day, they used to say, oh, he got his bell rung when he got up and he's dizzy. No, he had a concussion. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a that's an actual brain injury. So they have the, the players themselves have to understand the severity and the impact that multiple injuries can cause just as the family members, because we have parents that can push our loved ones because we're trying to get them, whether we're trying to get them a scholarship to a university or to professional levels. We have to the parents have to understand the athletic staff has to understand the significance and the impact of not paying attention to the different types and levels of head injuries and what multiple injuries can do to someone. If you have a question, 
please put it in the chat. Definitely ask Dr. Gurley Nettles any questions that you have. How can our listeners, how can they reach you and and think and, and then also talk about what are you were currently working on now? <laughs> so currently I do want to do return to school. So I'm, I'm looking at developing a program for returning to school and just, uh, you know, kind of standardizing a program for athletes, school age athletes and college athletes. What it's like to return to school when you have when you're suffering from a concussion or you've had a head injury and you have to return to school. And there's so many things are going to be different. And how do you function in that school and getting speech language pathologists involved in that process of helping the athlete return to the classroom? You know, how do you do that? What type of supports do you need? What does the instructors and professors, what do they need to know about this particular student and their learning abilities and their learning styles now? What type of supports will they need in the classroom? You know, it's okay to come with the letter that says, I have this but what is actually being implemented and why is it being implemented? Hmm. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing more of your work. I am, when I think something about return to learning in the, in the counselor, can you talk a little bit more about the counseling in the school system as well? Yeah. So the counselor, the counselors in the school system are multifaceted. So they could have the one-on-one sessions with the, with the student, and then they can work with the school, the education teachers. So whether it's the special education teacher, the general education teacher to help facilitate the return to the classroom, does the child need to have, or the person need to record all of the sessions? Do they need video? Do they need a transcriber in the room with them? Can they, is it easier for them to write? And we have to think about the other things. Sometimes there's light sensitivity. There's fatigue that plays a role. So the the counselor helps facilitate that process. Of course, being on the team and understanding these processes. And then they learn how the counselor also puts tools in their toolbox. If you're starting to feel like you're getting upset, what do you do? You know, do you take your deep breaths? Do you ask to be excused? You need to go take a quick walk. So those are some things that that could be facilitated by the counselor. They they can have different types of charts where they can monitor your mood to let you know what type of mood you're in, you're in for the particular day. It could be a check-in first thing in the morning, a check-in at around noon or lunchtime, and then a check-in before you leave just to see how you're feeling, what you're doing, and what your needs are at that specific time. Are you taking advantage of our new amazing feature, the Certificate Tracker? The free CE Tracker allows you to keep track of all of your CEUs, whether they are earned with us at speechtherapypd.com or through another provider. Simply upload your certificate to your registered account and you're all set. So come join the fastest growing CE provider, speechtherapypd.com. And when we talked about speech pathologists, so how can the counselor, even within the school system, the speech pathologist, how can we advocate and go and provide screenings? And and because athletes, student athletes may not be 
the first on our on our caseload, right? I mean, if they have a brain injury, so we need to go out and we need to do some work with screening, and we need to be able to talk to other professionals on the team. And how do we go about doing that as a, as a speech pathologist in the school system, um, making sure that we're identifying this population? Advocating for the profession, that's always where we start. We advocate in terms of what we do as speech language pathologists and how we can help. And then we can, um, you know, and then educating the coaches and the other athletic staff regarding speech language pathology and what we do. We could bring everyone in at the beginning of the season and do baseline testing so that we know what they're like now and get some subjective data as well in terms of behavior and disposition. And those things can be monitored throughout the season. Maybe the speech pathologist is the is one of the people who are on the field, just looking at what's going on and, and keeping track of who's, who got hit. Oh, that looked like a pretty heavy hit. How long were they down? So you could be a part of that team, maybe working with the athletic trainers as well. So it's it's a lot of advocating and then positioning ourselves in those spaces to mm-hmm. be present and to to present our knowledge and give them information that is needed to help the student athlete. Wow. What what would you say also to your students too? Because when we have when we think of students um, that are wanting to to you know that are coming up in uh, speech pathology, what would you say to our students and getting involved in this area? Yes. So one of the things that I I talk about advocating for the field, that's one of the things that we do is getting getting our information out there, getting our, our knowledge out there, and then working with, in terms of working with individuals with head injuries, you know, you want to position yourself in those specialized facilities as well so that you have a a clear and deeper understanding of working with individuals with head injuries and getting that baseline experience. And then you can go out and create programs within school systems or within colleges and universities, working with the athletic department to create head injury protection or um, concussion protection or concussion awareness programs in those various spaces. And can you leave us with some resources, uh, especially when we talked about the mindfulness meditation? What are some resources that you use or books that you use that we should go out and, and bring in our toolkit? Let's see some books. There is um, a book by Leonard Edward. It's called Concussion, Traumatic Brain Injury, The Ultimate Rehabilitation Guide. And then let me see, I have a couple of resources listed here, resources, but there are a lot, there are plenty of websites. I can't find my page now. I have my notes, but there are plenty of websites that would help individuals who have suffered with brain injuries. And I can't call them, I'm having a brain loss right now with the actual websites, but there are websites out there that help people with sports related concussions. There are peer groups, mentoring groups, um, support groups, athletic support groups, concussion support groups, and family caregiver support groups specifically designed for people with concussions or suffering from traumatic brain injury that'll be very beneficial. So how can you give your contact information to our listeners and put it also in the chat so they can reach out to you and get those resources from you? Because I think you have a wealth of knowledge and would love our listeners to be able to contact you. 
and get that, get those resources. Are there any other questions? I have one listener says, you know, I myself need to practice mindfulness as well. I think we all need to practice mindfulness. I think there's such a great exercise. You've given us a lot to think about when it comes to living in the now and how we can utilize that in our, when we go outside and enjoy the nature. And then when we, when we're present at our job, when we're present wherever we are, you know, we need to be present in the now. So Dr. Gurley Nettles email is tiffany.gurleynettle.com no S, nettle at udc.edu. So nettle at udc.edu. And before we, before we wrap up, are there any, anything else that you want to add of, that we didn't discuss this evening? Well, when you're working with your patients, this is definitely, I think, important. Knowing when to send someone back to the hospital. When you're working with your patients. So if they are experiencing nausea and vomiting, headache, the inability to stay awake, if they lose consciousness, also increased confusion or agitation, restlessness, if it's, you know, being exacerbated or more than normal, convulsions or seizures, even if they begin to have difficulty walking again or experiencing vertigo. And of course, weakness, numbness, Um, or impaired vision. That's definitely when you want to make sure that you say, I think you should seek medical attention and you need to go back to the hospital, you know, if you're not already working in in acute care. If you're in acute care, that's when you go and get the medical, the physicians and bring them back in, let the nursing staff know. And then if you're an outpatient, that's when you want to recommend that they go back to the hospital. Yeah, definitely being aware of your patient. (laughs) That's definitely important. I think I also want to, I think when you talked about mindfulness, um, I just want to make sure that speech pathologists know how to really integrate that into their sessions too. So what can you add to like how to actually integrate it into our So what I would say, look at the evidence. So look at the evidence-based practice, look at the research that, uh, that is out there. There, I know there are several articles out there with mindfulness and memory. So helping patients with cognitive disorders and memory with attention and hyperactivity disorders or deficits that you notice and sometimes restlessness. Look at the look at the evidence-based practice that's out there. Try to implement it in some of your therapy sessions with your patients. And then look at mindfulness with certain behaviors from post-concussion. So you want you always want to follow the evidence and use it and then possibly do further research on your own. There are always gaps in the literature. So you can search the literature at the end of the article when they tell you well, more further research is needed here or further research or this this study could be expanded on by A, B, C, D and E. So follow the research, do your own research. You can do single subject design, just looking at one person and how a particular technique would work based on what you're seeing with your client. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gurley Nettles, for being a guest on On the Neuro. Um, We truly appreciate your research, education, and expertise you provided about the neuropsychology of sports concussions. Thanks for joining us and we will see you next week, um, next week. So thank you so much. If there are any other questions, um, 
please write them and um, contact Dr. Gurley Nettles. Again, it's tiffany.gurleynettle at udc.edu. I don't think we have any other questions. So, And also to help your patients feel better, make sure they get plenty of rest, relaxation, and sleep that will help heal the brain, avoid demanding physical activities, avoid alcohol, have them take it slow and gradually return to old routines. I'm sorry, we do have a question here. What would would be a good screening to give the athlete at the beginning of the football season? Mm, that's a very good question. I, you know, impact, and I'm that's one of the most popular ones that that um that they're doing now to get a baseline of ability and cognitive ability with college athlete, college athletes, and it's a computerized test. And it looks like it looks at various things from visual um, coordination, hand-eye movement to balance and cognitive um, abilities as well. Mm. That's one of the more popular ones. And I know that neuropsychologists, we, the impact testing, the neuro, the clinical neuropsychologist test that's computerized. Do you have any thoughts on that, on that assessment, the computerized assessments as well that are being used? No, other than I think, you know, it provides great baseline data and then you can turn around and use it at the end of the season. So maybe that's something that you initially do at the beginning of the football season and then you turn around and give them at the end of the football season and to look at the data to see if what the changes have, you know, what a change, what any, what if any changes have occurred during that time. And then you can, you know, you can specify it and start looking at um, the players who have had a lot of contact versus the players who've had minimal contact, the players who did suffer um, or were um, noted to have concussions versus the ones who did have some heavy impact and but weren't diagnosed with concussions. So you can really look at a bunch of different areas um, using that assessment tool. Mm-hmm. And then also don't forget to collect your subjective data, too, with regards to their baseline mood and behavior. And I think that's important for this population is to do the collect baseline data before the season, follow up during the season and then follow up after the season to see if there are any changes. And in this population, it's very important uh, to do that. So you're going to have that pre and post and then that consultation kind of period within the um, within the season as well. And I think it's also important to actually use cognitive communication assessments. You can use subtests, you can use screeners, you can use the cognitive linguistic quick test. There are assessments that uh, do detect the subtle mild cognitive assessments, but also know that if your patient or the athlete is telling you that there is something wrong and that they are not performing at their normal level is to explore more, even though they may seem normal, they may, may, uh, they may, uh, not appear, um, on the assessments as having, a having a, or, or being in like a mild, moderate, severe, but they're, they are voicing that there is something wrong with them. You, you need to explore more as well and learn how to document that as well. Do, do you have any, um, before we go, do you have any advice for documentation as well? Um, document everything. <laughs> that is my advice for documentation. Document everything. I think a lot of times we do rely heavily on the objective data 
But again, I can't stress that subjective data enough. Just like you said, um, I just want to echo what you said with regards to if the patient is telling you something is not right, definitely explore that. And you can talk to those that are around him, friends, colleagues, the teachers, and you talk about, you know, find out what the differences are. Or have they noticed any differences? So that that subjective data that you really can't get from you know, an actual assessment tool, you want to collect that as well. And that's why it's so important to set up support groups in your community for this, for athletes um, in this area, because they may, you know, outside of a treatment session, it may be that you, a support group is needed versus, uh, versus, you know, the ongoing therapy. You have to decide, you know, in your community, what's the best way to approach awareness and intervention. Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you so much again. And uh, we'll see you next week on On the Neuro. You can also contact me at info at headtospeech.org. I'm Dr. Tabia Pope. And follow us at Head to Speech on Instagram and Facebook. Have a good evening. Good night, everyone. Thanks for joining us at SLP Learning Series. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. If you like this and want to hear more, we are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word SLP Learn for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Mm-hmm.